every week, want to get a, a, uh, a big picture view of the Bible, God's story. God has shown himself to us. And we have been going through a historical section, and then we, we looked at some of the prophets who spoke in the midst of that historical setting in the Old Testament. And what we're doing now is we're taking chronologically a step backwards, but we're turning to a different kind of book, a different genre, they call that, different type of literature in the Bible. There are five poetic books, and for the next uh, few weeks, I want to be looking at each of these five books. This is, this is real life stuff. It's, it's, it's cast in a different way. It's not a letter that you can follow logically. It's not a pro- prophetic proclamation. Often it is, it is spoken. It's, it's truth of life and life with God spoken in poetic language, sometimes out of frustration and anguish, sometimes out of great rejoicing. In Proverbs, we, 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 we discover how this life, God's way, actually works. Uh, we deal with what is life all about in Ecclesiastes and even the most intimate of relationships uh, in the Song of Solomon. So this is real life stuff in, in poetic language that we're, we're going to be looking at in the next several weeks. This morning, it's the book of Job. It's answers. Are there answers? Answers? Need answers. Answers for people who are suffering. And Job is one of those books that, that you hear over and over the question, Why? Why? God, what are you doing? We've discovered that along the way a couple of times already. We've heard God's people cry out to God, Why, God, why are you doing this? God, you can't do that. It isn't supposed to work like this. This is contrary to my expectations. This is contrary to what I thought God as I knew him would do. And yet, this is how God is working. It may be that you're in the midst of Job kind of things right now. If you're not suffering hardship now, that's okay. Give it time. Give it time. If you have been suffering and yet now you're seeing, the, you're seeing some, some relief, praise the Lord. The, it may be that many of us, I'm sure, are in the midst of something right now that causes you to say, God, why is this? God, what are you doing? It might be touching your own life and your own skin. It might be something that's pressing in and touching those that are very close to you. This is a common experience of humanity. Job is one of the better known books, one of the better known characters in all the Bible for that very reason. This is humanity's common experience. We're not surprised by it. We're surprised by some of what occurs in the book. And we're surprised in the same way that Job is surprised. Why is this happening to me? And what answers can you give when it is? What answers do you need? What answers will help your heart? What answers will help someone close to you? who's in the midst of hardship or trouble. If it's not your experience right now, it will be. Um, As Job says, man is made for trouble like the sparks fly upward. Trouble comes upon us. Uh, Sir Walter Scott said it this way, come he slow or come he fast, it is but death that comes at last. There will be trouble. We are broken people in a broken world. What does the book of Job have to tell us about that? Job is a book that asks why. You who are parents, you've heard that question, right? Why? How many of you kids like to ask the question why? 
okay? Younger kids do. It's a younger kid's favorite question. Why? 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 Until the parents just want to scream and say something like, because I said so. Because I'm the mommy and you're not. You ever, you ever use that, parents? Have to, you know? Yeah, teens like to ask why. A little more challenging now, stretching their own wings, and they want to say, well, why? But there's a, lot of, there's a lot about life, a lot about the way things are that we don't understand, and we ask why. Job is a book that asks why. And Job is a book that suggests some answers as to why. Now, not all of them are good answers. And we're going to look at that as we go through the book of Job. The book of Job, well... Let me back up. Those, those good answers and not so good answers. You've heard some of those too, haven't you? In the midst of trouble. I, I, I heard recently from um, a friend several years ago, many years ago now, they, um, they went through the, the uh, great sorrow and anguish of heart of having a miscarriage. And while they're still in the hospital, friends came along, new friends came along and sat down with them. So far, so good and explain to them how this must have happened to them. It's clear from the word of God that this must have happened to them because there's some sin in their life that God is, God is working on, is, is pointing toward and, and, and is pressing them to deal with. And that didn't help. In fact, in his words, it, it took us several more years before we were willing to consider the claims of Christ because of that attempt at counsel and comfort in the middle of our anguish. That comforter sounded a lot like some of Job's comforters. There are good answers and there are not so good answers. In the book of Job, we have uh, three sections. There's a prologue, the first two chapters. This is what Job didn't see. Then there's dialogue. The the whole book is dialogue, and we're not going to work through all of that. I'm going to summarize it. We're not going to work through it all. It's too too long. Go back and read it after I've given you a a summary of it, and it might make a little more sense what's going on. But in that dialogue, Job has three friends. Those three friends uh, propose an answer, and it's basically the same answer cast in various ways, but the same answer. Job responds. He says, that doesn't work. It doesn't fit. And yet they try it from another angle, the same answer. You do that with your friends, right? You, you give them an answer, and they don't listen, so you say the same thing in different words, and they don't, don't listen. You, it doesn't work. It doesn't seem to fit. So you come up with the third way of saying the same. Well, Job's friends did that. And then there's another friend of Job's that speaks after those three, and then finally, God himself speaks. All of that is in the dialogue. And then we have the, what I call the epilogue. So this prologue, the part of the book that you don't read, well, it's the part that Job didn't read, but we better read it if we want to understand what's going on. God wants us to read that prologue. Then there's the dialogue itself, and then there's the epilogue that shows how things turn out. And we want to read that as well, because that's encouraging to us. If we're in the middle of the dialogue, we need to know the prologue that will help us make sense of it, And we need to know the epilogue that will give us hope to look forward to in the midst of this press of the dialogue. Okay, so those are kind of a a rundown of the overview. Now let's get into it. What are some of the things? As we look at that prologue, just kind of opening up the story. Well, let's go to the book of Job, chapter 1. I'll start at verse 1, and um, if you're using the Pew Bible, I've got the same one as you, so that's page 417. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Now, it looks like Job, but maybe that's appropriate. Maybe your job is your trial. 
Maybe your job is your press. So for you, this is the book of Job, not the book of Job. His name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There was born to him seven sons, three daughters. He, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. If you've ever heard a donkey bray early in the morning, you know that also was one of Job's trials. There were very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of his, on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in the, mid, in the midst of their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So there's Job. There's our introduction to Job and Job's life. And Job is prosperous and Job has a family. And he's seeking to raise his family and lead his sons and daughters in the ways of the Lord. Now there was a day when the sons of God came together in heaven. Now we shift to the heavenly scene. They came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said to Satan... Have you considered my servant Job? See, the Lord knows what Satan's up to. The Lord knows that he's, he's wandering about causing trouble and, and finding fault and pointing things out and stirring and poking. The Lord knows what he's up to. And he says, well, have you considered my servant Job? And you wonder right away, Job's saying, why you bring me up? Well, Job hadn't seen this part yet. That's probably what he was thinking afterwards. Why me? Why did you bring me into this? God is not surprised by Satan. And God is not going to be trapped into a corner by some careless remark that he made. And all of a sudden now he's boxed in. What's he going to do? No. God is leading the way here. Okay, Satan. You want to stir trouble. Have you considered my servant Job? Oh, Job. Yeah, Job's a real good guy. Job's a faithful guy. Job serves you. But of course, why wouldn't he? You take care of him. You guard him. You protect him. Job knows what side of the bread is, uh, what side his bread is buttered on. Job knows that he'll, he serves you so that you'll take care of him. He serves you so that he'll prosper. Take that stuff away. Job's a rice Christian. You're saying, what's a rice Christian? In mission circles, the, 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 the missionaries in certain areas of the, of the world at certain times, they would, they would uh, share food, of course, with the people around them. But especially they would share food, rice, with those who were hungry, who were part of the church. And so there were many people who would join themselves to the church because the church had rice. They were called rice Christians. They were there for the benefit of the rice, not out of devotion to the Lord. Okay, Job's like that, Satan says. Job is only serving you just because. You take his stuff away. You take the butter off his bread. We'll see what Job does then, okay? And God says, all right, here's the limits. You can touch all of his stuff, just don't touch Job. Satan goes out and wrecks havoc. You know what he does here? So, so there, let's, let's see, the sons and daughters, let's see, verse 19. There was a day when the sons and daughters were eating, drinking in the oldest brother's house, so they're carrying on one of those feasts. There came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys were feeding beside them, the Sabians fell upon them and took and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped. They took all his donkeys. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them all. 
there's a lightning storm that apparently catches the field on fire and it destroys his whole herd of sheep because sheep are not very smart animals to begin with. And the servants are trapped in it as well. The wind and the fire, it just roars and they're gone. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups, made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped. His camels are gone. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. Perhaps it's like a tornado, sort of a wind, and, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and grieved and complained and cursed, no, and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what we get the words of that song. He gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan comes back into heaven, and God says, well, how's it going? What's going on with my servant Job? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Skin for skin, Satan says. You put a hedge about him, you won't let me touch him. Yeah, I could take away his stuff, but he knows that if he doesn't hold on, if he doesn't stay loyal and toe the line, that you will touch him. So Job's really just a selfish guy. For Job, the only one he really cares about is not even his servants, not even his family. Job only cares about himself. That's Satan's perspective. And God says, okay, that's the charge. Made before all of the angels in heaven. God says, okay. That we'll have the test. We'll let the test go there. You can touch him. Only don't take his life. I'm not going to let you cut this test short, Satan. You're not gonna, maybe, maybe it would have been easier on Job if he took his life. No, we're not going to let you do that because we're going to show Job's steadfastness even when he doesn't understand, even when it doesn't make sense according to Job's own categories and what he knows about God. And so Satan goes out, and he's covered head to, head with, head to toe with sores, and it... It's, it's horrible. And his own wife comes along at this point. His family's a great help to Job. His own wife says, why, why do you stay so stubborn? Just curse God and die. No, Job says, should we take the good and not take the bad from God? And um, his, 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 his brothers abandon him. His, his uh, relatives and his friends all abandon him, except there are these Three. When Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each to his own place. Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they made an appointment. That's one of the ways we know this happened a long, long time ago, by the way. Those are some really strange names. <laughs> Don't take uh, um, encouragement here, parents, and, and, and decide that you've got new names for, your, for, for, the, for the babies that are coming. No, Bildad is just not a good choice, Okay. I made an appointment. This was written probably in the time of Abraham, Jacob, in that era. So this is a long time ago. And it's been a comfort to God's people ever since. So the friends come along and they make an appointment together. They agree together. We're going to come and show sympathy and comfort to Job. So far, so good. And they saw him from a distance. They didn't even recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. 
They tore their robes, they sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word, for they saw that his suffering was very great. You know what's the best thing they could have done? Just be there. Just join in. The, the, the ministry of presence is huge. Sometimes you don't want to go to somebody who's in great difficulty, in great hardship, because you don't know what to say. You don't have an answer. That's right, you don't have an answer. You don't know why. You're not God. Just be there. I am so sorry. I'm sorry for your suffering. I'm sorry for your pain. I'm sorry that, that this cancer has come. I, my heart aches with you. I wish I could fix it. You don't have to be able to fix it to come. Come. Be there. We need one another. So his friends come and they do that. Job laments and grieves. And when Job cries out, it's just not fair. That's when his friends feel like they have to jump in. But what I want to point out at first, right here in this, in this prologue before we go on, I want to point out that your faith matters. Job doesn't know what's going on. Job doesn't know that his life is a demonstration before all of heaven. Job doesn't know that God is revealing himself to the angels, that God is showing the devil's lies for what they are before all of heaven. Job doesn't know that. Job doesn't know that, that, that believers in God for 4,000 years from the time of, of Abraham and Jacob forward to the time of Christ and from Christ on into today that believers are going to hear this story, they're going to read this story, and they are going to be encouraged to trust God in the midst of their own sufferings, in the midst of their own hardship, in the midst of the times when Satan and his minions are having their go at you. And you turn to the book of Job, and you hold on, and you trust God for what you don't know. We don't know what we don't know. Job didn't know any of that was happening. He didn't know that heavenly scene yet. And he didn't know the difference his faith would make in heaven to the angels. He didn't know the difference his faith would make to people on the earth. He didn't know the difference his integrity of faith would make to you and I. You don't know the difference your steadfast decision to believe will make. You don't know the effect on your wife or your husband. You don't know the effect on your brothers or sisters who might turn away and yet be restored as Job's eventually were. You don't know the effect on a friend and how your persevering through trouble may give them a deeper, clearer, fuller picture of God and what it is to walk with him and to trust him. You don't know. You don't know even how that might trickle down in the future in your family tree. Can that really happen? It trickles much broader than Job's family, family tree. For a long time forward, even to today, we don't know. We don't know what we don't know, so we have to trust God. And you don't know, you cannot see yet the difference your faith will make. But when you decide to trust God in the midst of not knowing why, in the midst of not understanding all the bits and pieces about what is going on, when you say, I'm going to trust God anyway, that'll make a difference. And the fullness of that difference we can't yet see. Your faith matters more than you know. Okay, so after hearing Job's lament in chapter 3, the friends decide they got to give some answers here. And let's look at their answers. 
Let's look at a summary of what they, they, they describe as what must be happening. I'm not going to go through all the dialogues and conversations. Let me just give you one summary from each of the three friends. In verse 4, or rather chapter 4, verse 6, we'll pick up, um, we'll pick up the first uh, speech of Eliphaz. He says, Job, in verse 6, is not your fear of God your confidence? And the integrity of your ways, your hope? See, isn't your, how faithfully you follow? That's, that's, the, that's, what, that, that, that's what makes the difference, Job, right? You know that. When you follow God well, then God does well to you. Isn't that where your confidence is? Doesn't your confidence, Job, rest in yourself? Shouldn't it? Is what he's, what he's implying. Remember who that, was, who that was innocent ever perished. Nobody who's innocent perishes. Or where were the upright cut off? Come on, Job. Let's be straight here. Bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things are happening because something's not good with you. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble are the ones who reap the same. That's his, that's his mind in the matter. Turn over to chapter 8, and now we get Bildad. In verse 2 of chapter 8, Job, how long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert the right? Well, God must be doing what's right. God must be acting justly here, Job. You can't say that he's not. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Oh, it must be something your kids did, Job. That's why God did this. You see, it's, it's judgment. It's retribution. It, you did this, so God does that. Or your children did this, and so God has done this. It's simple retribution. That's how God functions. That's how God works. So his friends say. And God himself is going to challenge that mindset. If you seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you're pure and upright, surely then God will rouse himself for you and restore your righteous habitation. That's Bildad's advice. And let's turn over to Zophar, chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. Job, you say, quote, my doctrine is pure, and I'm clean in God's eyes. Oh, if we could hear from God. Oh, let God speak and open his lips to you, and he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Oh, Job, in fact, if we were to really compare the scorecard, God is going easy on you for how wretched of a person you are. And then they go on. They're not even, they're not uh, just content there. They're, they decide they're going to catalog for Job just how wretched and miserable he is. Uh, turn over to chapter 22. Chapter 22 and verse 4. Is it for your fear of him that God reproves you and enters into judgment? No. Is not your evil abundant, Job? There's no end to your iniquities. Now they just start imagining stuff. They just start making stuff up. You have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing. You've stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possesses the land, and the favored man lived in it. You've sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of waters covers you. Job, you're rich, you've got it all, and you probably haven't been generous enough. And that's why this is happening to you. 
You have too much. You deserve to suffer because you've been so comfortable, Job, and other people aren't. And that's not fair. That's the mindset. That's the, that's the comfort that Job gets. But that retribution theology, that God, is, you did this so God is doing that, that retribution theology is much closer to what we heard from Satan at the beginning of the book, isn't it? Doesn't, doesn't Job just serve you because you do this? And if he didn't serve you, you'd do that. This theology, this retribution theology, as I, as, that doesn't come from God. That's not God's perspective. That's human perspective and even hell's perspective. They are assuming cause from effect. Now, God will say in his, in his law, if you do this, you will experience my blessing. And if you do these things, you will not experience my blessing. In fact, you'll have cursing instead. But that doesn't mean you can go back to some of this experience and say, well, this looks like cursing, so we must not have obeyed. That's not necessarily the case. Let me give you a very early example of that. Cain and Abel. What did Abel do? What did Abel do? He did nothing. He did, he, he did nothing wrong. He did what was right. He did what was right before God and his brother's jealousy against him caused him to perish, to be murdered, right? Well, you could look at, in retribution mindset, you could, well, Abel deserved to die. And that's why Abel died, because Abel really didn't do right. No, Cain's the one who did wrong. Cain's the one who had murdered his brother. Cain deserves to die, and yet Cain lives. Well, that turns the whole retribution thing on its head, doesn't it? You can go from cause to effect, but be very, very careful about observing some effect and jumping back to a cause. Why? Because you don't know what you don't know. Job didn't know what had gone on in heaven. Job's friends didn't know what had gone on in heaven. And so they come to a conclusion that would just press Job into the ground. It heightens the test. It makes the test even all the more genuine for Job because he's got no support. In fact, they press him further, encouraging him in that same mindset. And yet, Job somehow perseveres. Job somehow holds on. Job holds on to things that he can know for sure. It's interesting, Job's response to his counselors, to his friends, he said, no doubt you are the people, no doubt you're the ones, no doubt wisdom remains with you. <laughs> and he goes on. He says, your, your principles, he says, your principles are proverbs of ash. Your, 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 your answers are defenses of clay. They are no help to me. But Job holds on to what he does know. Turn over to chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 23. These are some of my favorite verses in the book of Job. Chapter 19. Verse 23 says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Don't you love that? Job, if you only knew. 
Oh, that that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in a rock forever. Oh, that we could write the story down that it would last. And he's thinking, because I'd, I'd finally be vindicated. Yes, you would. Not because you're right and God's wrong, because you're right and you have endured Satan's test against you and God is right and God upholds you and God restores you. But Job doesn't know. Oh, that my words were written in a book. They will be. They will be. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my flesh has been, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes will behold him and not another. How my heart faints within me. My heart faints within me now, but this I know. In my, Job held on to his hope of a resurrection. This is early. This is before the Gospels. This is before Moses and Deuteronomy. This is before the book of Daniel uh, prophesied the resurrection. This is early and yet already, like Abraham, whom God says in Hebrews 11, looked for a city that had foundations, whose builder and maker is God, so did Job. Even when I die, my hope is not here. In my flesh, I will be risen out of that grave. How can that be? How will that happen? For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. My confidence is not in myself. My confidence is not in my obedience. My confidence is not being able to toe the line so that God will treat me well. My confidence is in my Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer lives, and because he lives, I will too. Oh, that's the hope we need to give somebody in the midst of trouble. Even in this, your Redeemer lives. He's been there. Do you know that? Do you know that God has not even allowed Job to go through anything that his son did not already go through? Did you catch what I just said? God does not allow Job to go through what his son has not already gone through. What's wrong with that? You're just going to nod and accept that statement just like that? Wait a minute. Time. Timing. I said Job was back with Abraham. Jesus isn't crucified until the end of the Gospels. There's a lot of 2,000 years there. Oh. But Jesus is the lamb slain from before the foundations of the earth. Jesus has died. God is not bound to time as we are. God is above not only but outside of time completely. Jesus' death in our experience happened at a certain calendar day, and yet he is in eternity the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Already the Son, the Redeemer, has died and lives. Job somehow even gets a piece of that. Sometimes we think these older saints and far earlier generations, because they didn't have iPhones, they are country bumpkins compared to us. No, no. He walked with God. He knew God. And he knows that his Redeemer lives. And his hope is then in God and not himself and not in this whole nonsense of retribution. 
Hold on to things that you know for sure. Paul puts it this way, I know whom I've believed. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've entrusted to him. My work, my ministry, those that I love and even myself, he is able to keep those that I've committed unto him against that day. God is able, even though I am not able. Nobody else stays near, his brothers, his friends, his guests, his colleagues, employees, his staff, they all desert him. His Redeemer does not. He opens his hurt to the God who is near. There's one more counselor, Elihu. I'll speak very briefly about Elihu. Elihu says a lot of good things. When you read what Elihu says towards the end of the book, from about chapter 32 forward, 32 to 37, in there somewhere, Elihu says a lot of good things. Elihu has a good grasp on the sovereign, transcendent God. Elihu misses the God who comes near. The God who came near in Jesus Christ. The God who has entered into our humanity and entered into our suffering and entered into our brokenness. And the God who can take it when Job pours out his heart to him. Pours out his hurt to him and his anger and his frustration. Just like Habakkuk could say, God, what are you doing? God, why don't you do something? God, you can't do that. Go ahead, pray like that. The psalmist does. And God can take it. God can take it. He knows what's in our heart. Go ahead, pour out your heart of hurt before God, but don't abandon your faith when you do it. Say, God, this does not add up to what I know about you. Don't let go of what you know about him. That's the point of the book of Job. He does not let go of what he does know about him, even as he opens up his heart to God. You can cry out to God. Let God's people pray. But don't demand an answer from God as if God is accountable to you, because he's not. God is not a Santa, a Santa God in a vending box, that he should give us the certain things that we expect. And God had been silent here. God had to be silent. The test would not have been as valid as it was before all of heaven if Job knew what we knew. And yet God's not playing games. God gives us the first two chapters so that we will know, so that we can trust him even when our world falls apart. He is the God who comes near. Job, you said you wanted to talk? Here I am. Chapter 38, God comes near. Go ahead, declare your cause, Job. Go ahead, make your case. Job's conclusion a couple chapters after that? I've heard you. But now I have seen you. And I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Finally, the thing we take away from Job, and this is in the epilogue, the final chapter, chapter 42, is to trust God to restore what was lost. Look at verse 7 of chapter 42. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job. Offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. Not to Job. Job's going to function as the high priest and intercessor here. Reminds you of somebody else who suffered for us, to be our high priest, our intercessor. But Job's friends, even in their fault, Job's friends are restored by the offering of an innocent sacrifice on their behalf. There's another picture of our salvation in the book. 
Job's friends are restored through prayer. Offer that sacrifice, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. You've been preaching retribution, and I'm about ready to give it to you. But Job will pray for you. You know, you have an intercessor. You have a great high priest. You have Jesus Christ, whoever lives at the right hand of the Father, to make intercession for us. Don't ever plead for what's fair. Don't ever plead for what's just for yourself before God. Claim his mercy. And don't let the devil tell you otherwise. Finally, there's no promise in the book of Job of no suffering. God can be trusted even in the suffering. Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The promise is that God will take Satan's worst and will use it for our best. God will take what Satan intends to destroy you and he will use that instead to lift you up and exalt you. It doesn't feel like it at the time, but that's what God will do. That's why Romans 8 says it is not an empty promise. It said all things work together for good for those who are the called according to God's purpose. God will take Satan's worst and he'll use it for good. He takes Satan's worst and he writes it in a book just like Job begged. He takes Satan's worst and he, and he, he writes it in a book so that saints for 4,000 years so far would be encouraged and strengthened. Job had no idea the difference. When he, the way he looked at it, everybody abandoned him. He had no influence on anybody. They all took off, except for these three. But you and I are strengthened because of Job. Finally, there's an interesting part. There's an interesting part, and I put this on the slide. There's a category. There's an inventory given. Do you wonder why there's all these thousands of sheep and camels and donkeys and all of that stuff in the beginning of Job? It must be important. You know why? Because it's also at the end of Job. There's a category, there's a catalog rather at the end. Let's compare the end to the beginning. How many children in the beginning? How many children at the end? How many sheep in the beginning? Seventh, I can't hear you. Some of you can't see the slide. How many sheep at the end? How many camels in the beginning? Camels at the end. How many oxen in the beginning? Well, actually, there's a thousand. A yoke of oxen is two. How many oxen in the end? Okay, it's doubled. How many donkeys in the beginning? How many donkeys at the end? God restores to Job not what he lost. God restores to Job double. Okay, Satan, you do your worst, God says, and then I'll do my best. And he gives God double back. Or, you know, no, God gives Job double back. You see that? You got any problems with that? Yes, you do. What about the kids? What about the kids? He only gives them 10 kids. He's supposed to have 20 now. He does. He didn't lose the first 10, folks. He didn't lose the first 10. They are safe with his Redeemer who lives. And they too know that at the end they will stand and see God. Oh, they're not with him now. Some of you have lost a child. Some of you have lost a child you never got to know. Some of you have lost a parent, a brother, 
their sister, a friend, a loved one. They're not lost. They're just not with you. If they are with the Lord, if they have been redeemed in Christ, you haven't lost them. You haven't lost them. God doubled everything, and he slips that in at the end of the book for us, doubling everything else except the kids so that we could get it. Because those first ten aren't replaceable. You can't just get new ones, can you? I'm also encouraged that the kids seem to be the focus into the future eternity. That means there'll be no donkeys in heaven. I'm good with that. (sighs) It's going to be quiet there. You've ever heard a donkey bray? It's a horrible sound. What the book of Job tells us, reminds us, is that we can say, blessed be his name. Our God redeems. Our God will make it right. Do not let the enemy whisper in your ear anything else, anything to the contrary, anything that says God cannot be trusted, God is not being fair with you. When the devil tells you God is not being fair, you say like somebody shouts out, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God is not being fair with me. God has been more than merciful to me. God has been gracious to me. And even when the enemy would like to take all that away, God will more than restore it. Let's pray. Lord, in our midst this morning, there are hurting hearts. Lord, would your word strengthen them? Would your, your word inform us, Lord? Speak to us. Teach us that we might learn as well from that pen engraved in stone that left this record of Job's hardships and suffering for us. Lord, you restored him. You were faithful to him when nobody else was. You are the rock upon which we lean. You are the one upon which we stand. All other ground is indeed sinking sand. And Lord, even the trouble that's at present will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Father, would you strengthen our hearts to be able to say in the good times and also in the bad, blessed be the name of the Lord. In his name we pray, amen. As the ushers come forward at this time to receive uh, the offering, Matt.